Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to the podcast. Returning guest Dr. Lad Keith from the University of Arizona joins me to discuss extreme heat. Obviously, heat waves have been in the news, and I wanted to talk with Lad about what's going on. Lad and I discussed the media coverage of the latest heat wave in the Pacific Northwest in Canada. Are they doing it well? We also discussed the idea of naming heat waves, and is it a good or bad idea? Lad gives a very detailed explanation on what he thinks. We also talk about how cities are staffing up with people who will focus on extreme heat. It seems like a growing number of cities are taking the threat of extreme heat more seriously. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. It's a sobering and enlightening conversation with Lad. Okay, upcoming episodes. I'm working on a two-part series, learning how Nantucket Island in Massachusetts is adapting to climate change. I'm also doing an episode with the conservation group, the Sky Island Alliance, based here in Arizona. We'll learn some of the long-term impacts of climate change on the beautiful and unique Sky Island ecosystems. Also, since I'm making up for not covering extreme heat enough, Dr. Kelly Turner at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs joins me to discuss some of the larger policy options in dealing with extreme heat. Okay, adapters, let's join Lad and dig into the increasing perils of extreme heat. Hey, adapters, today I have a very exciting episode. I'm actually recording in person again at the University of Arizona here in Tucson. Joining me is recurring guest Dr. Lad Keith. Lad is the Assistant Professor in Planning and Chair of Sustainable Built Environments here at the University of Arizona. Hey, Lad, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me back on. Okay, this is the first time we've seen each other, I think, in 14 months. We've all just done this COVID thing, even though we live in the same city. This is the first time we're seeing each other. It's great to see you, lad. Yeah, it's good to see you, too. We are here to talk about heat. If folks remember, we did an episode with Lad a while back called The Fundamentals of Extreme Heat. So we're going to touch upon some of these issues around extreme heat. But as you well know, heat is in the news, a lot of things going on out there. And I wanted to bring Lad back in because he's in the thick of it in what he does at the University of Arizona. And we're going to talk about the media and such. But Lad, give us a little bit of a primer. What's going on out there? Why is heat in the news so much? Yeah, so heat's really been in the news June 2021 due to the two heat domes that resulted in a really strong heat wave for the southwest of the United States and then another one in the Pacific Northwest. You shared something on Twitter yesterday which blew my mind, and I've been following the news pretty closely. Canada actually broke an all-time temperature record, which broke our record here in Tucson. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's correct. So Lytton in British Columbia, Canada, actually broke their national heat record three days in a row, so consecutively, and they got up to 121 degrees Fahrenheit on June 29th. And to put that into perspective, both Tucson, Arizona and Las Vegas, Nevada, have only gotten as high as 170 degrees Fahrenheit. That is shocking. You can just imagine what those people up there are thinking that they're used to temperatures probably in the 70s and some of the maps that I've seen and hitting 120 must be shocking to them. What do you think they're doing? I mean, even their, their public health system is probably not adjusted to what's going on up there, right? Yeah, so that's one of the big concerns that heat affects places differently, as we talked about before, across the United States and across the world. And so in these more temperate regions that have these really strong heat waves, they have lower use of air conditioning and their public health systems just aren't currently equipped to deal with some of these um, extreme heat events. Lad, you have been in high demand. It seems like every day I'm hearing from you and there's a new interview that you're doing 
doing local um, news, maybe NPR. Tell me a bit about who you're talking to and why are they reaching out to you right now? Yeah, so it seems like there's a lot of increasing interest in heat risk, which is a good thing because we do need more awareness about it. We do govern it less like we talked about previously. And so kind of any chance that I can get out there and talk about extreme heat risk and spread some awareness about it, um, I feel really fortunate to be able to do that. So what are these news outfits typically asking you? Yeah, so it depends on the audience. And so the more national ones typically have like science journalists who ask some more specific questions about the contributors and impacts of extreme heat. And then I do get some media requests from the local news that tend to be more for a general audience. And so kind of everything from what's causing these extreme heat events to how cities and people can adapt to them. You're an expert. You're this interface with the news media desperate to get some accurate information out there. You must have your own sort of in your head talking points that you really want to get across. Even doesn't even really matter who it is, right? I mean, what are you thinking? Yeah, usually I try to make sure that um, I talk both about the urban heat island effect and climate change as contributors and give those kind of equal weight um, just so that they get into the story. And then, of course, talking about equity. But I think a really important thing is that in academic literature, we focus almost specifically on equity and kind of vulnerable populations and marginalized populations, which is a really good thing. But I think especially for a general media audience, it's important to kind of broaden that out and let them know how everyone's affected by heat and not just the most vulnerable populations. Populations. Extreme heat is the number one killer when it comes to impacts of climate change at the moment, and it's a serious thing. But when I see the media coverage, it's all over the map. And I'm just curious, your own sort of experiences, not just talking to it, but you, what you you and I both, we, we follow Twitter pretty closely. There are some certain Twitter voices out there that there's this emergency quality to some of the things that they're saying. And I find myself wondering, even with these extreme heat events, is this the right kind of tone we want to take? And I'm just curious your thoughts. Is I, w- I want to pick your brain on how the media has responded to this most recent heat wave in the Pacific Northwest. But there's this notion of, okay, this is the future. It's going to get bad. But then there's the doom and gloom. It's just it's out of control quality to some of the rhetoric, too. What, what are your thoughts on that, those approaches? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it mirrors other kind of climate journalism in a lot of ways. And so there's questions about will certain places become uninhabitable due to um, extreme heat? And that kind of mirrors the questions about places like Miami with sea level rise. And I think always going back to the answer that it's not going to become uninhabitable for everyone. But the question is really um, that they should be asking, who will it be less habitable for? So kind of who's going to be impacted the most and who will the uh, climate Im- who, who will the impacts uh, affect the most? most. Just some other things specific to heat. I understand that heat is incredibly difficult to visualize in the media. And that's something that I've struggled with, too, with presentations. And so there's a lot of images out there right now for the Pacific Northwest of kind of kids playing in splash pads and families at the beach, which makes it almost look like a good thing. And I think finding other ways to visualize extreme heat. And so there were stories of families and I have friends and colleagues in Portland who were hiding in the basement with their families, you know, for a full day because they didn't have sufficient air conditioning. You know, the people's experiencing homelessness and what they're going through, um, whether or not they can get to a cooling center and kind of safe location. So so I think kind of visualizing extreme heat in different ways so that it just doesn't depict people kind of having fun at a at a water park um, would be a really important part of that, too. And then I think specifically with the Pacific Northwest heat wave, there's been some really interesting framing that I think we could do a better job at where it's framing. I've seen a lot of stories that are framing climate change as this heat wave 
kind of confirms that this is the future of climate change. And it's very focused on language about the future of climate change looks like this. And the thing I think I would want to get across is this is the present of climate change. This isn't the future. This is the present of climate change. And it's actually going to get worse unless we really uh, mitigate those greenhouse gas emissions. Where I get tripped up in maybe some of the coverage and you know, some of the people, we've mentioned Eric Holthouse before. You know, he, he has a distinct voice when it comes to climate change. And I think his tagline now is this isn't a climate emergency. I think he uses that on every one now. And yet when I hear, I guess, more proactive responses to what's going on, okay, so these heat waves, what are we going to do? How are we going to adapt to these things? And then you hear conversations about planting more trees or you need to do these in these urban areas. There's such a contrast there. And I'm not even necessarily disagreeing with Eric in the seriousness of the matter, but you go from this climate emergency talking more broadly about climate change to well, you need to change your, your your tree ordinances in this particular town to help mitigate against heat waves. You see what I'm saying? There's just this spectrum of urgency to these kind of issues. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And heat really is both a chronic and an acute risk. And so what I mean by that is heat, uh, those gradual temperature rises do have significant impacts to people, everyday people, vulnerable populations, marginalized populations. Those stories aren't as interesting for the media to cover because that's just, you know, the summer was a little bit hotter than last year again. And I think that story, unfortunately, is almost um, kind of old. You know, we're breaking records every single year at this point. So I think the chronic heat risk, focusing on that's really important. And then we do have these acute heat events, um, these extreme heat waves that are occurring that do get most of the attention. And so I think we do have kind of a disparity in how chronic risk versus the acute risk is being covered. And it's really easy to ignore the chronic temperature rises that, again, really do have significant impacts to energy and water use, people's comfort in their homes, the health and safety of the public. I did my own following. Like We did have some time to to see what was going to happen to the Pacific Northwest. It seemed like it was like a week in advance. It's going to get this record heat wave. You know, I was looking at the local coverage in Seattle and Portland, and I was pretty impressed. And there was actually some interesting stories. What does it mean for food trucks? I mean, they really, they had all the local reporters got on their beats. But it occurred to me, like some of the stories, like here are these cooling centers and a lot of useful information coming out from the local media and what's happened in the last 20, 30 years. Local media has really taken a hit and it's just it's really terrible timing because they're so useful in these situations like a heat wave. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's leading to a little bit of the the disparity that we're seeing when these local events do happen because you do get a lot of national perspective. And, you know, I've had really good experiences with national, again, kind of environmental and climate journalists reaching out, trying to find local experts. But still, if you're going to have some sort of bias, if a lot of the national coverage from these events is coming from the coasts and not the specific places that they're happening. Well, we're here in Arizona and we're used to heat and we actually had our own a mini heat wave. It's, I don't think it was nearly as serious as the Pacific Northwest just because we're so used to temperatures over 105. Even here in Tucson, we had a few days where it was over 113 and I think we broke the record, right? We, we broke the record and I want to bring up Michael Crimmins. He's a, he's a faculty here at the University of Arizona, but I think he's a state climatologist. You please clear that up. 
And he did a Washington Post column about what's happening here in Arizona. And I thought it was really good. He just he laid out some of the science. He laid out sort of like, okay, these are the transitions. Could you maybe give a little bit more context of that article and what we was trying to say? Yeah, so Mike Crimmins is a professor and an extension specialist here at the U of A, and we're both colleagues at the NOAA-funded Regional Integrated Science and Assessment Program, which is CLEMIS, and that serves um, Arizona and New Mexico for us. But there's RISA programs across the country doing similar connecting climate to decision-making work. And so Mike wrote the Washington Post piece that I agree did a really good job of kind of laying out the climate change connection specifically for that southwest heat wave that we experienced, and kind of both in how it increased the the likelihood of it occurring, the duration of it, and the intensity of it. So I thought it kind of really nicely laid it out in plain English for the nation to kind of see. Yeah, I think a lot of local news coverage could learn a lot just if you broke his column down into like, these are the points you should hit. He did a really good job. All right, I'm going to shift a little bit here. And this is what you do. This is your bread and butter, helping cities get prepared for things like this. And you just recently got a grant, right? This is exciting. Congratulations. Tell us a bit about the grant and what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah, thank you. So this is a NOAA-funded grant. They have a new extreme heat risk focus that they're looking at. And so I'm working on this project with colleagues Sarah Miro at Arizona State University, Philip Burke at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, and Joe DeAngelis at the American Planning Association. So what we're doing is looking at plan integration for heat with the idea that when a city plans for a climate risk, it's not just one plan like a comprehensive plan that guides action on it, but it's actually the whole network of plans within that community. So a comprehensive plan, a climate action plan, hazard mitigation plan, even parks and recreation plans. And if you don't align those plans appropriately, some of them might actually point in different directions, increasing the risk. So the idea here is that we're going to look at five different cities and their networks of plans and overlay those on top of each other to see what the composite kind of direction that they're heading is for heat risk and then help guide those cities with both integrating their heat mitigation strategies to decrease that heat with the urban heat island effect. And it's also a really good opportunity to bring together different disciplines that don't normally work together. So urban planners, hazard mitigation planners, landscape architects and architects. Okay, so you're working with some specific cities within this grant, but the overall goal, though, is that these the lessons and the structure and the I think the plan, it's, it's called PERSH, right? PERSH is the acronym for it? Yeah, so the project title is the Plan Integration for Resilient Scorecard for Heat, PERSH, and it's building off of work that Philip Burke did previously where he developed plan integration methodology for flood risk, and so we're taking what he did for flood risk and adapting it for heat, essentially. And the exciting thing about this project is that since we're partnering with the American Plan Association on it, that this information, the guidebook that we come up with will be available for all of APA's members and will actually be freely available on their website for all communities to look at and learn from. I want to talk a little bit about heating. And, and I want to encourage people that if you didn't listen to Lad's first appearance, well, his first appearance was an end of the year episode, but the, we did an episode called Fundamentals of Extreme Heat. And we covered a lot of the bases of what is extreme heat? What are the sort of, you know, some adaptation actions? And we're not going to go necessarily down in that direction in this conversation. So I encourage you to go look in the archive and find that. It's incredibly helpful. Still very relevant today, but related to that, one of the conversations we had there, and I sort of want to follow up with that, is what makes extreme heat, I guess, not as sexy as the hurricane or some of these other climate impacts is attribution to climate change or attribution to even to heat as people die. Let's say there's a heat event, and I think we're going to, there's probably going to be weeks until we find out how many people died in Canada because it's, you had a heart attack or exposure might have taken, manifested itself in other forms. 
even it's been a little while since we had our conversation and we touched a little bit upon this, but are they getting better at linking those? Is the public health system getting better and are they talking to each other? And I mean, it's just useful to have that data because you plan accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say the availability of that data depends on where you're at in the United States currently. And so Arizona does a better job than many places, the state of Arizona, um, in recording heat-related deaths and illnesses. But even there's a lot of room where we could make improvements here, too. And for places that haven't traditionally experienced these extreme heat events or even chronic heat like we were talking about, they might not be recording it in ways that make it immediately kind of accessible for the public and media. So so I think having those numbers available and kind of improving that reporting, and there's been research done that says that even in those places that do report them currently, it's probably vastly underestimated. And part of part of that is just just tricky because heat compounds other health risks. And so, you know, you might you, heat might be a contributor to your death or the mortality. But, you know, the official reason may be listed as as another cause of death. So so it can be tricky for um, for that to be reported out. Right. But if you were in the right environment, let's say you had air conditioning and you didn't and you died, even though there was sort of an unrelated cause, you should attribute that to heat exposure. You might have lived another few years, 10 years, whatever. And so I, this is where it kind of gets tricky. Well, you know, on, on that note, I want to shift into what some more of the cities are doing. And we we're sort of transitioning to that. But just before we go away from the Pacific Northwest, how do you give the media? Media. Like uh, maybe even I put you on the spot, a grade, just the whole media, generally local on how they've covered it. And it's still I mean, it's kind of unfolding still, even though it's breaking, I think, even at today. What's your sense on how the media handled that? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think, you know, you, you made a comment earlier that we, I think you and I were both watching kind of the predictions of the heat wave coming up. And I want to give the National Weather Service a lot of credit because they really did a good job of predicting almost exactly what happens. And so they gave people almost a week or two weeks to prepare for the event um, before it happened. I think because this was so record breaking, um, like we talked about, there's there was just a lot of disbelief that it was going to happen, which is understandable. So I think from that perspective, I think the local media certainly did a good job of covering as as it was going on and reporting things like their, some of the roads started to buckle. Um, you know, there was power outages. They reported those very quickly. They tried to report the cooling center locations and kind of the changing criteria for where those places were and what the operating hours were. And even things like the TriMet um, transit system had cables that were literally kind of melting due to the extreme heat. And so I think a lot of that was reported incredibly quickly. So I think on the, on the other hand, you saw kind of some national national coverage of it that just focused on the heat wave aspect and not attributing it to climate change. And I think there was some pushback and some of those stories actually did get corrected and climate change was later added into those. Do you think it's confusing? I'm thinking people who are urban planners, but then the public themselves, that they are having trouble understanding the difference between a changing climate and weather extremes. And I guess I'm even focusing more on the, those planners that they're like, wow, look what happened over here. Maybe we should do some things different. And if there's such a front page quality to some of these things, like this heat wave, do people down at the planning level, is is that useful to them? Do you think they are reactive or does it filter right down into what they do in other ways? Yeah, no, I think, I think that's exactly what makes extreme heat hard to govern, which is what I study. And so 
There's the chronic aspect, like we talked about, that sometimes dealt better with those long-term changes to the built environment to reduce that urban heat island effect. And then there's that kind of emergency management side of things, um, those heat management strategies that cities need to pursue um, related to getting information about um, oncoming heat waves to the public, getting things like cooling centers opened, you know, shutting down sports events and all of those. And I think there's also disciplinary disconnects, like we talked about, too. And so right now, heat mitigation strategies are seen as and are seen and are functionally very much in the kind of the planners and landscape architects and architects realm, where the heat management strategies are very much in public health and emergency management. And I think there's actually a lot of opportunities for better connecting all of those together, because where we mitigate heat in the built environment can also tell us the appropriate places to put in cooling shelters and things like that. So so there's a lot of there's a lot of disconnects between those right now. And I think there's a lot of opportunities to better coordinate all of those activities together. The city of Miami just appointed the first chief heat officer in the nation. I think that's accurate from the coverage I've... Well, you're Miami-Dade not, County. <laughs> Miami-Dade County. I know better. I should know that. It's all just Southeast Florida. They're all one giant strip mall. I'm going to get some crap for that. You, um, can, you can re-ask. <laughs> Do you want to? No, I'm keeping this. I, I've been you're talking about it. Miami for a while now. So that's exciting, though. That's very – and I last name, Gilbert. Do you know her? It's, what's the full name? Yeah, so Jane Gilbert was the city of Miami's previous chief resilience officer, and she's been appointed Miami-Dade County's interim chief heat officer while they while they look for funding and try to build that position up. In one of the articles that had a list of five or six bullet points. Okay, what is this position supposed to do? I was like, oh, that looks pretty good. Do you think they've set her up well to do what they want her to do? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's no answer to that right now because it's such an emerging area of governance and they're such the forefront. They're such at the forefront of it. The city of Phoenix actually just created Office of Heat Response and Mitigation also. And so I think those are the first two examples in the United States. You know, we, we have had staff, city staff before that have been appointed the people to deal with heat, but it's usually along with other climate risks. And so I think these are the first two examples of kind of people that are truly just dedicated to heat as a risk. And it'll be really interesting to see which approaches work best and what we can learn from so that other cities can kind of apply them to their own situations. Well, we certainly wish her luck. And I think a sign that, you know, how serious is the government taking is like, is there a budget attached to the work that she's doing? I think at the moment, they're still looking for funding. I hope she's a good grant writer, because I think that's going to probably be where she makes a lot of progress. But I think a lot of people will be watching what she does. That's I think that's really cool. I want to talk about maybe how some cities are, are doing this. And so Miami, they've appointed a chief heat officer. And I was reading as I was getting ready for this, how you have to think big. And I want to get your opinion on what cities are kind of doing it well and why do they do it well? You don't necessarily even need to get into the details or what are they doing, but you just mentioned, how does a city really respond to this issue? Do you know have good leadership and along those lines? And I, there was a city in Germany I was reading that at Stuttgart, and they actually have reconfigured figured some of their roads that because there's mountains there and I think it flows air through the city. They use the entire city as sort of a vent and they've made ordinances that you can't build buildings in the pathway of these airways. And I thought that was just really cool thinking big, thinking macro. So what cities are doing it well? 
Yeah, that's a big question. I think everyone, so I'll back up and say my colleague Sarah Miro and I have done a survey of planners across the United States, some all different regions, looking at how their cities are addressing extreme heat. And then I had a previous NOAA-funded project where we did interviews and plan analysis, looking at how five different cities, again, kind of across the country, are planning for heat, both chronic and heat risk. And so I think what we found is that everyone focuses on a little bit different parts of it, depending on what the risks are. And there's no one great example that everyone should follow right now, but some cities are doing things better than others. And I would say the city of Phoenix is doing a really good job with connecting different levels of governance on heat. And so the city works very closely with the Arizona Department of Health Services and the National Weather Service to kind of do a heat relief network is what they call it, where they make sure that those warnings get out really quickly and they have kind of cooling center response. I would point to the city of Tucson historically since we have scarcity of water have always kind of been doing a lot of planning around uh, water scarcity. And so green stormwater infrastructure has been a big thing here for a long time in the arid Southwest. But a lot of those same strategies are preparing us well for dealing with um, the urban heat island effect too. So, so there's a lot of work going on in Tucson right now about increasing vegetation to decrease that urban heat island effect, but doing it in a way that doesn't take from groundwater or the central Arizona project. So I briefly had a short conversation with Dr. Kelly Turner at UCLA, and I think I'm going to have a longer conversation with her. But one of the things that she brought up, and I think that other people are looking at too, is the idea of regulating heat as pollution. And I'm not sure if you've given this much thought, but if people don't realize, we regulate water, we regulate air quality. There's metrics that you set. And I thought that was very intriguing, the idea of regulating heat pollution. And there's all sorts of things that you need to start factoring in until you get in the business of regulating. Have you seen much of that? Have you seen much talk of that? Yeah, I've seen theoretical and kind of hypothetical discussions of what it would look like and, you know, which federal agency it may fit best under. I think it's an interesting idea. It kind of remains to be seen if there's actually the appetite to regulate heat in the same way that we regulate other kind of environmental risks. We have talked at length about climate justice and environmental equity in a previous conversation, but that's always going to be a driver. And when you talk about heat exposure and who is most at risk to extreme heat, and I'm just wondering on how we address some of those things elsewhere. And I was giving this some thought. And when you think about crime and where they have new tools to deal with crime, like if you see crime clustering, they're using GIS to say, well, now we're going to put more cops on this beat. Do we look at heat the same way and be like, well, look, we can look at the city and we know that the temperatures rise in this area because there's not as much tree cover. Now we can direct funding and we can direct resources and all these things. And do we do that now? I think most cities would like to do that. And that's absolutely where the current thinking is headed. And so whether cities have access to an urban heat island map or an ambient air temperature um, derived map, I think that's the idea with those maps is that heat is inequitably distributed across the city. And there's a lot of research that's come out recently that shows that lower income and heavily minority uh, populated neighborhoods are the ones that are typically hotter in metropolitan areas and even neighborhoods that were redlined are the ones that to this day are still hotter. So I think I think that's absolutely the thinking that you can identify those highest heat severity areas, um, look at those other factors that are playing into it, and then hopefully put some of those heat mitigation strategies, target them to those areas to at least make the distribution of heat in the community a little bit more equitable. Well, this is a very simplistic way of thinking of it, and I'm that seems like it'd be a powerful tool for community activists, and I'm sure some have already the got wind of this, but they can point out a 10 block area and look, this is hotter than the surrounding area. And you've got 
50% less funding going to these areas. We've gotten, you know, temperature proof that these areas need more. And it just seems like it'd be a powerful tool to have that kind of the, that information at your disposal. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just vegetation increase, which is one of the most popular strategies that cities look at. Urban forestry is still, like we talked about the last time, urban forestry and stormwater infrastructure is still seen as the silver bullet of solving urban heat. But other things are really important too. And so um, the housing quality, air conditioning, access, even the transportation system, and do people have reliable access to um, transportation in those areas? So I just recently sat in on a virtual conference around managed retreat. And managed retreat is the idea that, you know, I'm not going to give the great definition because everyone has a different definition, but usually associated with sea level rises. The seas rise up. Coastal cities are going to have to migrate away. It's a very controversial subject, but it's coming in places like Miami. Whole conference, tons of presentations around this, but most of it around flooding and most of it around sea level rise. And it occurred to me, occasionally you hear a conversation about as rising temperatures come about, you might have to abandon areas, not just these things like planting trees, but actually abandoning areas. Have you heard much about extreme heat being part of the managed retreat conversation? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I haven't heard so much about managed retreat due to extreme heat, but it's more the way that it's been framed to me again is, will Phoenix become uninhabitable or will X city become completely uninhabitable and will we have to abandon these cities due to extreme heat? And again, I think I go back to the, the we need to ask a different question. It's not whether they'll become uninhabitable. It'll, it's really the question of who will these cities be less habitable for and who kind of suffers the brunt of these climate risks. With the Pacific Northwest, heat wave while that was occurring, there were several other heat domes in the northern hemisphere that were occurring kind of at the same time. And one of them was taking place over Pakistan. And there was some news that the very briefly, the threshold was passed that was hotter than the human body can withstand. And it was due to the incredibly high humidity and the extreme heat that they were experiencing at the same time. So it was just a brief period that that threshold was passed. But of course, that will only affect the people that are outdoors in that time period. And if you're inside an air conditioning, you know, you're not experiencing that exposure in the same way. All right. I am going to push you a little bit on this because I agree. Is there is a transition period? But if this area becomes truly uninhabitable, because if let's say poor people can't get access to oh the cooling areas, they're cooling their house, but it's still getting hotter. And eventually a city is going to unravel if it doesn't have the right mix of people, the right mix of workers. Are they truly going to have to abandon an area because it's just too hot? And even wealthy people that can just air condition tunnels, it's that doesn't seem too sustainable. And I, I guess, again, your point about how people are going to transition, I get, but you just haven't heard really discussions around. I mean, to me, managed retreat is relevant to extreme heat. Yeah, so I, I would focus more on the strategies that cities aren't taking advantage of right now that could increase their heat resilience going forward. And if there's so much that we're not doing that we could do, I think we could improve the quality of life of people in those places that are getting hotter. So that's kind of the first thing I would want to focus on. I think the the other just point I would make is, you know, people thought of the Pacific Northwest for a very long time as kind of a climate refuge. And, you know, whether in conversation or just kind of on the street, people um, kind of daydreaming about like, oh, maybe... If climate change gets too bad and, you know, place X, I'll move to someplace like Portland, Oregon or Seattle that's uh, super cool and has like water and isn't projected to have, you know, the drought that we're experiencing in the Southwest. And I think, you know, there's no place that's safe from climate change. And that's a little bit of what this heat dome event in the Pacific Northwest has kind of proved. 
Okay, lad, there's an effort underway, and we've chatted a little bit about this, to name heat waves. Is this a dumb idea? Yeah, so I wouldn't call it a dumb idea. Um, I would say it's an intriguing idea that has a couple of considerations I would want to think through or want kind of the the academic and practice community to think through with um, the idea of uh, naming heat waves. You know, the first is that the awareness of heat events isn't necessarily the only factor in how we respond to those heat events. And so, again, I just point to the incredibly robust meteorological services that the National Weather Service provided that gave us exactly the time timing of the last two heat waves in the Southwest and the Pacific Northwest gave us the duration of them, gave us even very close temperatures to what we actually experienced. So I think the National Weather Service's current system warned people appropriately. And one great thing about the National Weather Service is we do have those local offices that know the context of their places um, very well and can, can give, get those messages out appropriately. I think another consideration for that is that just focusing, like we talked before, just focusing on extreme heat events fails to really capture the full scope of heat as a hazard. And again, it's not just about those extreme heat events that are media friendly, but also about those chronic rising temperatures. And so, well, any uh, any effort to raise awareness on heat as a risk, I think, is worth exploring. I think really naming heat waves could take away from some of that focus on chronic risk that, again, will always impact those vulnerable and marginalized communities quite a bit. So there's kind of an equity consideration with that, too. And just another practical consideration is that naming heat waves could be very difficult because creating a standardized and systematic way for identifying heat waves and ranking them across all of the different climate zones and geographies in the United States or across the world is very different is very difficult to do and so I think that would be a very um, tricky thing and for example you live in Tucson last summer we had the hottest summer on record it was the hottest summer in the northern hemisphere on record and we did have a couple of periods where I would I would say you could classify those as heat waves, but essentially our entire summer last year was a heat wave, right? And so would you name that a heat wave and just kind of plop it over Arizona for the entire summer? And at that, at that point, what, how, what's the usefulness of that kind of activity? And then I guess the last, the last kind of consideration would be that naming storms isn't necessarily a neutral action. And so there's been a little bit of research that's been disputed and kind of, you know, talked about in research, but naming storms with a female name versus a male name may impact people's perceptions of the danger of the storm and people may take male named storms more seriously. And so that's just something to think about too is that when we kind of get into these more gimmicky ways of raising awareness about real climate risks that really do have potential to put people's health, impact their health essentially, we're always introducing some cultural bias to that too. I had a conversation about this recently around naming heat waves, not not in depth, but it's my understanding actual names is not on the agenda, like of someone's name. So it wouldn't be like, you know, Hurricane Janet or Hurricane John. It, it would not be names it, that that's not even in the cards. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure which direction it, it would head if this did go forward, but I, I did see some reference to, I think it was like her, it was like Heatwave Diablo or something like that. And, and you know, that's, that's a cultural, that's introducing cultural bias right there if you're, if you're giving it kind of that moniker. The, the other really important thing I think is that, again, while the National Weather Service did an incredible job forecasting the events that occurred and getting that information out to the emergency management departments and that system worked very well, the types of 
of awareness that naming and ranking heat waves would raise would likely be among the people that are on Twitter and watching local news and kind of keyed into the whole media, you know, the whole media landscape. And I'm more concerned about the folks that don't pay attention to the media and whether it's because they're just too busy or whether it's because they lack electronic devices or they're people experiencing homelessness and they literally don't have an internet connection. And those are the populations we really need to make aware of these extreme heat events when they occur and whether it's named and ranked or it's just the current system that we have with the National Weather Service, we'll encounter the same difficulties of getting that information out to those people. And things unfold so quickly. I can just see where the the name barely even gets into the media's hands before the heat wave has already passed. And I wonder, here we are, we're just, I'm speculating, just throwing out some ideas, but you know, the idea of level one, level five, but to me, the mortality side of it is the most important thing here. And after the fact, is there even any value of saying this was a level one heat event because a thousand plus people died? You're actually putting a category to the people that died. You would hope that's useful information to planners after the fact. So even though it's not used by the media, they can point to it. All right. Last year was a level two event. 500 plus people died. To me, the mortality is such a the most compelling thing here, like how did this really impact people? So here in Tucson, we adjust better than people in Portland. So if only seven people died here, you know, that was only a level five event. And I'm just making things up. But any, you could really get down in the weeds of like doing it. But I, I do see some value in simplifying things. But the, the naming of the heat wave, it just, yeah, as you just described, also fraught with issues. Yeah, the tricky thing, too, is the Pacific Northwest heat wave had a couple of days, you know, three or four days where it was incredibly dangerous record breaking. And it's kind of it, afterwards, it went back to still very high temperatures that were above the norm. So, you know, that's another question. Does the heat wave end at the end of the record breaking period? And then you stop, you stop naming the heat wave and it's over. And, but the risk continues because they're still experiencing incredibly high temperatures right now that are, that are higher than a lot of people have capacity to deal with in their homes. I would imagine people playing the long game with these heat waves and those are local planners and elected officials. The naming of it just isn't nearly as important. It's just they're, it's getting access to the information to do the proper planning, proper investments, and they're, they're on the ground doing things. And so I guess the naming is more of a, a media tool. So yeah. And, and again, I'm, I'm open to see where the conversation leads on that. And if it turns out to be a useful thing that actually does raise awareness and can be done in a way that doesn't take away from the chronic heat issues and equity concerns, you know, it could be interesting to explore, but I think there's a lot of other work that has to be done in the meantime. You know, one other story I want to bring up, and I think this, this maybe should have included this in the equity section is that Jeff Goodell of Rolling Stone magazine, who I really love, he just does a lot of great climate stories and I've had him on the podcast. He did a story recently on air conditioners and you brought up, I thought, some really salient points about the flaws in that article and you, you can soften what maybe I'm, I'm describing, but what, what did he talk about and what, what did you think was just maybe not useful advice? Yeah, so he brought up a very valid concern that air conditioning has the potential to be a maladaptation to climate change if we're just increasing air conditioning use and not thinking through the consequences that we're also thereby increasing the greenhouse gas emissions that contribute to climate change. And air conditioning actually also contributes a lot of waste heat to the urban heat island effect. So kind of in both of those ways, air conditioning is certainly something to keep an eye on and make sure that it doesn't become a maladaptation. But kind of on the other, on the other side of that coin, I strongly believe in the idea of thermal equity and that everyone should have access to you know, safe indoor and outdoor environments, whether they're at home or work or their school or, you know, outdoor doing exercise. 
And so I, I think just a couple of considerations are that while we talked about some of those northern um, temperate cities have lower air conditioning use rates, the United States as a whole, our national average is actually about 87% of people have some form of air conditioning. So I think we're talking about the 13% in the country that don't have air conditioning. And I think there's a couple of things to be really careful about when we start talking about we don't want to increase air conditioning use. Those 13% are more likely to be lower income and not have access to um, efficient air conditioning. And so that becomes kind of an equity discussion where, you know, those that can't afford it already have it. And now we're saying no one else should adopt it. And who are those other folks that don't have air conditioning currently? I think a couple of other negative consequences could be potentially, you know, if this message is really pushed out to decision makers, it could actually dissuade decision makers from pursuing some policies that could help assist those folks that need air conditioning to have those thermally safe environments to get those. And so I think that's something to kind of think through too before we start pushing um, kind of limiting air conditioning use. I mean, the to take care of that maladaptation concern that is really valid, I think the really important thing is to push air conditioning efficiency standards to make sure that air conditioners that are installed are incredibly efficient and contribute the least amount possible to greenhouse gas emissions. And even today, the air conditioners that um, you can install are so much more efficient than the ones that were on the market 10 or 15 years ago. So, so I think there's a lot of room for increasing the energy efficiency of air conditioners and upgrading the air conditioning that people do have. The other thing to think about, too, is weatherization programs and just making sure that whether it's through assistance programs for those folks that are lower income or kind of promoting the idea of weatherization to folks that can't afford it, um, but making sure the buildings are energy efficient too, to help take care of some of that maladaptation risk. Okay, but I, I, I want to mention that he, one of his solutions was just sort of an, an ordinary fan could be used to cool people. And you and I, both from Arizona, that's not a solution, is it? Yeah, so I mean, I have fans in every home in my house. We have a fan in my office that I was running before we started to record. You know, fans are great and they can certainly provide a lot of thermal cooling, but after a certain temperature, they can actually start to heat up your body and make, <laughs> make the heat worse. And so I think whether it's chronic heat or acute heat, fans alone will not solve the problem. And I think, yeah, they're, they're part of the strategy, but they're not going to save people's lives during an extreme heat event, certainly. Well, right. I have fans in my house, and it's about moving that cool air around. It's not necessarily cooling you. And I would like just to add, like you'd mentioned, 13% don't have access. That's the United States. The rest of the world, they are going to ex be exposed to extreme heat, and they're going to want access to air conditioning or whatever sort of technology. Uh, I hate to say it, and the, the, it's maladaptation, but it's going to be upgrade. We're going to need it as temperatures rise. The... I guess the burden here is getting into renewable energy faster. The notion that, I mean, no one today that has air conditioning is going to give it up, right? You're not giving it up. This is a conversation about more people getting air conditioning, and that's going to require energy. That's going to add to climate change. We need to get renewable energy. But the notion that they are not going to want to <laughs> deal with these rising temperatures like the rest of us, that it that is a non-starter and you know i not because i say so it's just that's just how human nature i think 
Yeah, absolutely. I think you bring up two two good points. So the first about kind of the global scale of it. it, it does fall very much into kind of colonial conversations where the developed West has air conditioning and suddenly we're concerned about greenhouse gas emissions. So we don't want anyone else that doesn't have air conditioning. So that not only applies to the lower income populations with their own country, but you can see taking that same argument kind of at a global scale, which also has some incredibly like inequitable consequences if you pursued it. I think the other point to make is that while 87% of the United States have some form of air conditioning, air conditioning is not a binary. You have it and you're safe and you don't and you're not. And so a lot of homes in Arizona have central air conditioning, which is kind of the safest form to have and the most efficient form to have. But a lot of folks in those more temperate cities might have a window box air conditioner or you know a portable air conditioner that might provide cooling to one single room versus a whole house. And so I think the other thing to kind of think through is um, indoor cooling is not uh, yes, you have it or no, you don't. And again, those folks that are lower income and have less resources, whether to buy the unit in the first place or whether to pay for the energy that fuels it, are going to be the ones that are less likely to afford it. All right, lad, we have covered a lot of ground here. For those who they want to get started, they let's say they're down at the city level, they're in a nonprofit working in these areas, they're community activists. What, are, what is some advice for people to get started to learn more and maybe get to some of the tools like, all right, how do we plan around extreme heat better in my community? What would you recommend to them? Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say there's a couple of federal resources that have really good information that's currently available. So the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, has an urban heat program. You know, it's been up on the web for a decade at this point. It has just very good general advice for cities and kind of neighborhood folks that are looking at ways to mitigate heat. I think on the other spectrum, the CDC has really good heat risk information that could be really helpful for emergency management departments or public health departments that are looking to learn more about this. And then NOAA, like I mentioned, has quite a few ongoing initiatives. And so the National Weather Service um, certainly has information about heat risk for local communities. And there's also the National Integrated Heat Health Information System, NIHIS. And I'm sure we can post that link to your to the podcast summary. And NIHIS has some really great information that spans multiple kind of federal agencies. So that's a really great place to go to. All right. Yep. We'll have that all in the show notes. All right, lad, you know it's coming. If you could recommend any guest to come on the podcast, who would it be? Yeah, so this might be a little bit of a cop-out, but I'm actually really interested to hear what people on the ground in the Pacific Northwest thought when they experienced and kind of lived through the heat wave. And so, like you said, I think since we're in Arizona, we have the advantage of actually living through these heat waves ourselves, and we can talk to our neighbors and our friends and family. I, I would be really interested to hear what kind of the, you know, the regular person in the Pacific Northwest thought about going through this and if it changes their mind that this is actually a climate risk they should be concerned about. Like I mentioned before, I did some interviews with uh, different decision makers around the country on heat and those in the Pacific Northwest that we talked to um, certainly recognized that it could be a risk, but it was much lower on their priority list. So it'd be you know really interesting to see if this actually changed minds and is getting people to think about heat differently in some of these more northern cities. Excellent recommendation. And I know I have plenty of listeners in Washington State and Oregon. Reach out to me. You can find my email in the show notes. And that would be great. Maybe we even do like a short monologue. You can just describe some of the, the real world experiences that you 
you dealt with. And, you know, I, I think I even have academic listeners in the region. If, you know, something that you might have to say. But, no, that's a great idea, Lad. Please, if you're listening to this, reach out. I'd love to hear firsthand how you experienced it. All right, Lad, thank you so much. It's always a treat to have you on. And thanks for hosting me here at the University of Arizona. Yeah, great to have you again, Doug. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Lad for coming on the podcast. Always a treat having him on. I learn a ton. So Lad and I recorded this interview just as the heat wave in Canada and the Northwest was breaking from its most extreme temperatures. We talked about how hard it is for some communities to determine mortality from these events. But it's been a few days since that recording, and Lad has shared with me the most recent data. The numbers will continue to rise as communities learn more. 95 people have died in Oregon, 30 in Washington State, and 486 in British Columbia, Canada. Shocking numbers, especially in Canada. The media is still trying to determine the best way to report these figures, and in a timely manner. It could take weeks, months, or even longer to get a more accurate account of fatalities. But this information is critical for planning ahead. And it's not just the mortalities. But hospitals in these regions have experienced thousands of visits with heat-related illnesses. It's testing the health system in a big way. Thanks to Lad for keeping us updated on this information. Obviously, the heat wave was this massive event. The actual temperatures that were recorded were unprecedented. People like Lad will be increasingly in demand as more and more communities will have to adapt to a changing climate. Many of them probably didn't think rising temperatures and heat events were something they had to factor in. But as the past week has shown, larger geographic regions will be impacted. I will continue to cover extreme heat on the podcast and share from experts on how we are learning to adapt to these rising temperatures. And I also thought of our discussion about naming heat waves was very interesting. It seems like an idea that's getting a lot of momentum, at least on social media, And Lad brings up a lot of great points on why we might need to step back and focus our efforts elsewhere when addressing extreme heat. I'm sure you'll hear in the coming months about naming heat waves. I want to encourage you to learn more on your own, and if you're in the adaptation space, weigh in where you can on the merits of the idea. Okay, don't forget to subscribe to the American Apps newsletter. We highlight the latest episode and news and stories related to that episode's topic. We also highlight other climate podcasts and share a few other adaptation-related goodies. In the show notes, there is a link to subscribe. Please go check it out. Subscribe now and share with your colleagues. Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, consider sponsoring an entire episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. So for example, UCLA sponsored me to do several episodes around adaptation in California. At the time, I traveled on location to interview experts that they wanted me to include as part of this episode. Usually those kind of episodes have quite a few expert guests. Basically, they are sponsoring an entire episode to share their particular story. I've done this with the World Wildlife Fund, Harvard, University of Florida, and a few other nonprofits. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation. Many groups work it into their communication strategies. And I've been doing these sponsored podcasts remotely, but as we continue to open up, I do go on location and I would like to travel because I think you capture a lot of interesting stories that way. So email me at americadaps at gmail.com to learn more. And as always, I want to remind you, consider reaching out to me. I love hearing from listeners, hearing what you do. Give me feedback on the topics we've covered here and what you might like to hear about in the future. 
I hear from folks frequently and it's the highlight of my day. Yes, please take the time and email. Some final housekeeping, join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. Go on over there, start posting. To get into the community group, you have to be approved, but I'll do that right away. But definitely check it out. There's some side conversations that get interesting. Okay, check out the website also, americadapts.org. All background information on the podcast, on things that I do, are at the website. Definitely check it out. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.